Hello, my name is Paddy Buller, and this podcast is brought to you from Liberia, a bookshop by Second Home. This time around, I welcome Castor Henderson to discuss some of the more intriguing explorations in his encyclopedic and magisterial book, New Map of Wonders. But first, a couple of recommendations. I'm going to steer away from fiction this week um, because there's a new book on the early life of Bridget Riley. And I think it's timely as well as important given the Lee Krasner exhibition at the Barbican. Uh, Paul Moorhouse looks at Riley's struggles to be understood in institutions such as Goldsmiths and RCA, whilst also considering artists who influenced her around this time, such as Edward Monk and Matisse. And it's a really beautiful package as well. And the title of that is Bridget Riley, a very, very person. So do check that out. On this tip, same kind of women in art tip, Mary Gabrielle has written an important book redressing the dominant view of abstract expressionism as predominantly led by male artists. Uh, Nine Street Women looks at the central importance of five extraordinary talents such as Lee Krasner, Elaine de Koenig, Grace Hartigan, Joan Mitchell and Helen Frankenthaler. So yeah, again, very important work in the, in the context of 20th century art. So do check those out, Bridget Riley and Mary Gabrielle. But yeah, let's go and talk to Casper Henderson. Then, you know, to follow on from that, um, you talk about, I suppose, our ignorance or our lack of understanding when it comes to our, you know, different species on the earth and, and you know, our, under, our lack of understanding with regards to the breadth of consciousness and the fact that, you know, uh, birds, dolphins more specifically, you know, there, there, there have been signs of them being able to make... I suppose what you call multi-step causal reasoning. You, you, mm-hmm. you refer to that in re- regards to corvids and crows. And then there was another inter- amazing, fascinating story where, and heartening as well, uh, where a woman was on the coast and su- suicidal and it became apparent that dolphins had picked up on this um, in you know and they were they, they abandoned the, their feeding zone and came and, and surrounded the, the the woman for protection I mean that's quite astonishing isn't it like, it is and it's, it, it's amazing um, with regard to multi-step causal reasoning uh, in the covids uh, I you know I think many of us are more increasingly aware of this that, that you know the phrase bird brain yeah at least for some species is uh, you know the idea that birds are stupid is something we can clearly uh, move beyond now. There are some birds which are pretty thick, no, qu- no yeah, question, yeah. but uh, corvids and some other families, parrots, uh, you know, they are incredibly, astonishingly intelligent. You know, mm. um, the brains are quite differently constructed. I think that's one of the reasons for a long time people thought they couldn't be so smart is because they don't have a, a neocortex. They have a different kind of uh, brain development. Of course, you know, they are actually dinosaurs, as we know. Mm. Um, and... This actually, you can find this in Aesop, you know, the, the fable of the crow dropping yeah. the stones in. Crows will do things almost exactly as described in Aesop uh, from whenever it is more than 2,000 years ago. They can work out that, in that Stunning. case, to put, uh, I think, stones, you know, into a jar full of water, a narrow-necked jar full of water, drop the stones in with their beak one by one, and um, an attractive bit of food on the surface of the water will rise to the neck where they can reach it. You know, that's kind of so crows can do. So... That um, that's just one aspect of their intelligence, of course, mm. and all that it might um, suggest. With regard to cetaceans and and uh, dolphins and the anecdote that you mentioned, mm. 
Um, that I think I've quoted, I was going to say lifted, quoted from, um, it's cited by Carl Safina, a mm. uh, wonderful American conservation writer and uh, zoologist, um, a book of his named um, Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel, I think is the subtitle. Mm. He looks at primarily at three species in the book, uh, African elephants, savannah elephants, um, uh, orcas or killer whales and wolves. Mm. And uh, that's, again, actually, you can go back to the Greeks and then maybe in other traditions too, um, stories of, of dolphins intervening in human affairs to save people. Uh, but this does seem to be a, a properly documented uh, account. Dolphins are, along with other cetaceans, or several other cetacean species that have been studied, dolphins can be astonishingly, astonishingly empathic mm. um, and sensitive to, to human emotions as well as mm. uh, things we're thinking and doing. They can work out often what we're thinking as well it's, as how we're it's feeling. It's astonishing. Yeah. It's absolutely astonishing. It is. Uh, and it's very beautiful and, um, you know, of course, heartbreaking when, you, when one thinks of uh, mm. uh, what's happening to, uh, to many species now, uh, the pressures they're under from uh, various human uh, influences and activities. activities. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but hey, you know, it's, um, it's a beautiful and uh, encouraging thing. And, and uh, you know, along with a good breakfast, it's one of the things that can help you get yeah. up in the morning and keep going. <laughs> but like, also, like, there, there's another story you cited as well where it's often been um, observed that if, 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 unfortunately, if there's a dead person on board a ship, they will... And there's you know, dolphins are nearby. Maybe it was maybe it was dolphins. I think, I think it was. Uh, I think that anecdote I recall is re- relates to orcas to killer yeah, whales. Right. I th- it's now a little dim in my mind, but I think it um, somebody died on a ship, and I think who was known to the orcas, and they swam with the boat, and at least to the people on the boat who are research scientists. And yes, of course, they have their biases mm. and perhaps sentimentalities, but nevertheless. It sounds like um, they observe behaviour, um, which, well, one could accuse um, perhaps of anthropomorphising, but yes. it seemed very real to them, um, and perhaps not unreasonably, yeah. <laughs> that the uh, they were being accompanied on that occasion. Um, and orcas are, are 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 traditionally known to be quite ferocious. I mean, they're they're killer whales or wolves. Of the well, sea, they, that's know? right. I mean, they're they're. Um, you know, it's one of those uh, perhaps um, mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, th- there is, according to Safina, there is uh, no documented case of a killer whale harming a human being. They are ferocious predators, but mm. they don't eat humans. Um, they, why do you think that is? I mean, is there any well, research to, to suggest why? Or is it, is it just that we're not really that interesting to them? As I mean, well? I guess mostly, you know, they haven't evolved to eat us. So in the first place, they, you know, perhaps okay. if, if humans spend a lot of time paddling around in the water... Um, perhaps they, you know, if we'd come on a different route, mm. um, they might, you know, because obviously they'll, they'll kill seals. Perhaps they recognize our intelligence. And, okay. um, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm wary of speculating, yeah. but I, I, I'm confident to cite, uh, and it's Safina's research here, mm. that there are no documented cases of, um, of orcas, otherwise known as killer whales, killing human beings. Okay. Rather the opposite, you know, helping them in, in situations of, of distress, distress, such yeah. as the ones we've, we've alluded to. Um, yeah. <laughs> Incredible. Um, to go, going back to co- the whole idea of consciousness and the development of the, of the human mind, it, 
it's fascinating again in your book um, talking about children and the developing mind or the developing brain and you talk about causal maps mm-hmm. in, in, in children and how this is essential obviously for, for orientation and understanding of the world and interpretation of the world um, could, you, could you talk a little bit about that? Uh, well, I can I can try. I'll yeah. throw out a few comments. Um, and again, you know, I should stress I don't have expertise in this area. I mean, the mammalian brains and perhaps others, but mammalian brains, you know, they have these um, something which we can make an analogy to maps within them, within mm. the hippocampus. People might have heard of grid cells, you know, so rats can, when they're working out the position in relation to various objects or walls or whatever, uh, there'll be neurons will fire at a particular point uh, when they're at a particular point in relation to uh, a space. Okay. So there, there are maps in the head, essentially, you know, in, in certainly mammalian brains and almost certainly in, in other, certainly in birds, for example, think of their migrations. Um, we have, I mean, you use the word map there, we maybe take it quite, quite broadly or loosely. Yes, sure. Uh, nevertheless, um, they're there and they're very important. They're fundamental both to navigation and to memory. Uh, and uh, in the case of humans, as with other uh, young humans, children, um, as they're learning and encountering the world, they'll, the, these, um, these uh, grid cells will be firing. There'll be, there, there are things rather like maps, if we th- want to think of them as maps as in, mm. encoded in neurons, as one might think of maps encoded in code in your laptop. You mm. know, a picture of a map is actually code. Um, Perhaps that's not a great analogy. Nevertheless, what to say? Um, it's, I mean, I, I enjoyed uh, reading and researching for the book and yeah. learning about the way that children learn to explore and ex- uh, rejoice in the world around them. Mm. And there's some very rich and beautiful um, uh, experience that I've mentioned in the book from a project in uh, Cambridgeshire, a county park where children are taken to explore and um, draw maps. And of course, they're creating imaginative, fantastical yes, right. zones, you know, yeah. uh, places that you might disappear under the ground or. That's with Robert McFarlane, wasn't it? That's right, yeah. that's right. Yeah. So he wrote a lovely piece on this, and uh, I think it was later included in the book called Landmarks. Mm. Uh, um, and yes, I'm just. Nothing original here, but I just took took that as a starting point for reflection on on what it is that we, how it is that we start to construct maps and a sense of our place in the world. The book is called The New Map of Wonders, mm. and of course, there's um, there's a later chapter relating to what is what is the nature of world as we construct it, you know, and how mm. do we, in one respect, embody that in maps, and what do those maps tell us, and what do they hide? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. It starts when but we that, But it also is, is so important, as you say in the book, it's so important to feeding into their, their, their ideals and their beliefs, in, in a sense, because I guess it's, it's, it's reward-based, isn't it? Whether it's like, I mean, is that correct? I suppose if you, if you hypothetically or if you try and imagine it in the sense of, okay, well, if I go from this side of the room to the other next side, and I'm not prohibited then that means my you know I'm, I'm making the correct judgment and I guess you kind of allude to that in the book as well is that this is so important for children to and, and feeds into their beliefs almost in, in, in 
in a, it, I suppose further down the line, as in you know the kind of positive the positive reaction from elders. Right. Well, I mean, it's, it's part of learning, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, and uh, we clearly, there's a strong uh, selective pressure um, to to learn. You know, the smarter you are, mm. um, depending on how you define smart, of course, that's uh, maybe a question to explore. But nevertheless, the smarter one is, the, the more likely one is to survive. Um, and one of the ways in which, well, a, a key way, obviously, we become smarter is by learning. So there's a strong selective uh, pressure in certain species, including humans, clearly, mm. uh, to learn. And and so it seems logical, you know, this has been inferred and seems pretty pretty um, well-founded, yeah. that uh, we get pleasure from learning, partly because uh, it helps to survive. You know, being smarter mm. helps us survive. Um, it also, among other things, has the can have the, I don't know to call it a byproduct, but the result that we... Uh, we learn more and we enjoy more about the world, you know, and this is uh, a very basic and wonderful reality about mm-hmm. our, our potential that we, and we can, of course, continue, we can continue to keep learning. It's uh, one of the things I, <laughs> I like is about learning is um, it just keeps me feeling enthusiastic by and large. So, um, you know, keeping, keeping alive. Yeah, it invigorates, and, uh, it, doesn't it, it? It does invigorate us, you know, whatever it might be. I mean, it might be you, I don't know, Paddy, if you, you know, if you, um, I won't guess, you know, maybe you like playing poker or you like playing squash or you like mm. to read books, possibly you like to read books. <laughs> possibly. But, possibly, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, part of it is is learning about new worlds, about uh, new ideas, yes. maybe requiring, uh, acquiring a new skill, yeah. um, feeling um, invigorated by that. Yeah, and combining new yeah. ideas as sure, well. Yeah. Sure, sure. Which is kind of like a part of the creative process. But no, I, I just found it really interesting in terms of that childhood development sort of period as well maybe it's pre-language at a pre-language stage but then you know somebody like my favorite author speaking of reading is James Joyce you know and mm. he ex- he um, he explores this in a sense in portrait of the artist as a young man yes yeah because he he, he uses this technique called prolepsis and I think the ancient Greeks called it chiasmus but it's kind of forced you know there are indicators or signs earlier early on in the narrative which are born out later on. I, I suppose, in the most simple kind of example of that is Stephen Dedalus is a young six-year-old, and he's he's constantly exploring what language is and what you know what does what do certain words mean and how do we understand language. And of course, this is a kind of a precocious kind of indication of what. He, you know, he is to become a poet, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's kind of, it's kind of interesting, like, and I guess that's kind of, um, I guess that's the, the amazing thing about literature, isn't it? Like language is almost, you know, language and novels or, or stories are, are kind of an imprint or a mirror of, of kind of maybe what consciousness is. Well, that's a, maybe they are. Um, that's a broad music one, is, you know, <laughs> I mean, they are, you know, this is one of the great, uh, so fascinating thing about uh, any art form um, somehow through uh, various means including things we term symbols it can arouse um, sensations states of consciousness Mm. in the reader you or me uh, that will probably I mean remembering what I was saying about Dura but nevertheless probably were intended by Mm. the author in that case by Joyce you know he's, he's he's bringing 
what he was thinking. You, you are somehow re-experiencing or making, recreating or perhaps making a new mm. uh, a state of consciousness that uh, he hoped to offer. Yes. And that's a really astonishing thing, whatever, you know, whatever consciousness is, that yeah, we can yeah, share yeah. that in this, um, in this rather strange world. <laughs> um, and that kind of, that leads on nicely to Dostoevsky because you, you talk about him a little bit in the book and this is a part of the brain called the insular cortex, which governs experience. And is it experience? Go, yeah, uh, close enough, I guess. I'm, I'm okay. To be honest, not completely sure. I think okay. it's quite complicated, but yeah, yes, probably yes, it's involved. As so with all of these things, yeah. 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 Um, he, Dostoevsky experienced seizures or epileptic fits of a, of a certain kind, Um and he kind of spoke about them or reported them in, in documentation as these kind of ecstatic experiences where he was conscious um, in, in experiencing them. Um, but could you talk about that a little bit in relation? Do you think, I mean, there there are many variables that feed into the greatness of what, you know, Dostoevsky, a great Dostoevsky novel is, but that must must surely be a, a huge part of it given you know when you do re- when i read dostoevsky or one of his novels there are certain parts where psychologically he is so evocative he's like no other writer i've ever read before and i just wonder you know how much do you think his illness may have played a part in being you know allowing him freedom to express these deep psychological ideas? It's a great question, Paddy. I I don't know if I can claim to, you know, I don't know if I can really answer. I mean, I I think you're right. He's an astonishingly gripping writer. Mm. Uh, And it's clear, you know, one of the essential truths of his life is that he was an intensely religious man. Mm. Um, And it does seem that these epileptic seizures that he had, which probably were the insular court, were... Uh, associated with insular cortex, I think there may be some ambiguity around that. Okay. There's been some, well, yeah, there's been some research quite recently with people who suffer seizures of a similar kind. It's thought probably in that same part of the brain, okay. and also have these very strong mystical experiences. Um, of course, you know, people immediately start to say, "Well, does it mean that it's all explained away by by um, pathology of the brain? Is, is mysticism explained away?" I think nobody doing the research would say. Now, no. A few people say that's the case, but clearly it gives gives some of the people who ex- have those experiences access to very intense mystical experience. And mm. Dostoevsky writes, I think, both in letters and, and elsewhere, maybe in diaries, um, about the value of those moments. There's one very often cited passage, and I think I probably cited it in this book too, uh, where he describes a moment of an ecstasy for which he almost willingly give up the rest of his life. Right. It only lasted a few minutes. Astonishing, yeah. Um, I mean, that intensity is a characteristic of Dostoevsky. And, and uh, his, what's the, there must be a good phrase here, but I can't put my finger on it. His, you know, for, when you read Dostoevsky, life is not a dress rehearsal, right? It's yeah. really intense. It's yes. like, you know, um, and that intensity of experience and perhaps the, the his his mystical the strength of his mystical experiences was clearly a, a vital part of, well, it, it looks like it was a vital part of what made his writing what it was and his, his urgency, his, um, you know, uh, this is really, this is where we are. Um, 
I, I, like you, I find his, uh, I, 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 although I have to say I struggled with Karamazov last time I read yeah. it. It does go on quite a lot. Um, but yes, the, the, the writing is like nothing before. I mean, I he obviously, he, he went through a lot of trauma as well. I mean, sure, his know, exile. Which, yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. and then the mock, Near execution. mock ex- execution as yeah. well, which, I mean, gosh, that, that would have broke, you know, I mean, the effect that must have had on him must have been quite nightmarish altogether. It's the kind of thing can often drive people insane. Exactly, it's yeah. Well, well and I think, it, you know. and it seems to me that, you know, his writing, that kind of, you know, at some sometimes, I, I hate to use the word manic, but, you know, there it, it almost seems like, you know, this writing is, is that release form for him, you know, it's the, getting those words down on the page is a, a form of, uh, I suppose, I hate to say therapy, but there is kind of like the intensity. It's almost mm. like he needs to leave everything on the page sort yeah. of thing. No, there is a kind of manic compulsive quality in his writing, obviously, right, which is fascinating. It sometimes seems a little bit, un, I don't know if unhealthy is the word, but, you know, it's, yes. it's quite disturbing for yes. sure. I mean, the, the I think the reference to uh, Dostoevsky comes in a chapter on the arc of a human life. Uh, I think yes. it's chapter five in the book. And, um, you know, this... In case anybody who's still listening this far hasn't got it, this is a slightly crazy book, you know, kind of foolish project. And the, the chapter five uh, tries to look at the arc of a whole human life from childhood through mm. to old age. And mm. um, <laughs> my kind of shtick, I guess, is around equanimity and integration, yes. which maybe is not, uh, those are not necessarily uh, qualities you associate with Dostoevsky, but I think... No, because bit. he was an anti-Semite as well. Like, I mean, well, that's, <laughs> that's another thing. Yes, he, well, you know, that's maybe not unconnected, unfortunately. But, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, although, no, that's probably unfair. Um, well, it's hard to know, yeah. isn't it, you know? Yeah, I, I mean, he was in a culture that was very anti-Semitic. Yeah. You know, uh, late 19th century Russia, anti-Semitism is enormously strong mm-hmm. force, obviously. Mm-hmm. Resulting in things like the protocols of the elders' design, but um, yeah, I, I mean the chapter is quite a hopeful chapter. I said, it, it, I, you know, I want to talk about integration and the nature of uh, soul, um, the uh, the kinds of wonder that you know. Th- th- there's an attempt in some respect in that chapter to itemize, maybe, or break down a series of kinds of wonder. So, wonder from music and sexual experience and religious and mystical experience both with Dostoevsky and others, um, and then perhaps some of the calmer, more integrated experiences of a life well-lived. Yes. Uh, kind of, it's all shoehorned in there somewhere. No, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's beautifully done, I have to say. It's, it's, it's magical. Um, okay, I think the last thing I want to turn to is the cosmological. So I think we're going from the interior to the cosmo. We're go- going to extremes here today, but I, I, I'm just... Con- quite interested in black holes and, you know, huge stars and all sorts of crazy <laughs> phenomena, physical phenomena that's going on out there. Um, there. There's a type of star, though, which I had not heard of or come across before, and I suppose it kind of demonstrates limits of my knowledge, but Cepheid class of stars. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Yeah, Cepheid variables. Yeah. Cepheid variables. Can you tell me a little bit about those? I mean, why are they, is there, is there a reason they're called particularly, is it because of the size? Because I think in your, in the book, you, you talk about some Cepheid variables are 100,000 times brighter than the sun. 
Yeah, the sun is a, a pretty standard sort of main sequence mm. star, and there are there are stars in in our galaxy and others which are much much bigger, and I think Cepheid variables among are among them. Uh, they are stars that uh, pulsate radially, mm. <laughs> and they, there's a strong direct relationship between the luminosity and the pulsation period. So basically, if it's pulsing at a certain rate, you can tell how bright it is, and okay. vice versa. And this made them um, a a key to working out how big the visible universe around us is. In, okay. the, in the early 20th century, people cottoned on to this. Um, there was a researcher, a woman named Henrietta Swan-Levitt, mm. who um, uh, studied thousands of them and, and came, came up with data that helped Hubble. You've probably heard of Hubble. Yes. You know, we all have from the yes. Hubble telescope, but Hubble was an early 20th century American mm. astronomer. Basically, the guy who worked out that there is, such, there is such a thing as a galaxy. People have speculated about this. We're in a galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, and there are other galaxies which are not just nebulae, kind of fuzzy clouds, which um, we can't quite work out what they are. They are other uh, island universes, other spirals or you know, other galaxy-shaped yes. <laughs> collections of stars. And looking at Cepheid variables in the Andromeda galaxy, I think, which is our nearest big galaxy, um, he was able to work out the distance because he, he knew that Cepheid variables of a certain brightness would, would pulsate at a certain rate. Right. So if you like, it was kind of, it was the kind of the ruler, you know, it was the measuring rod that made it possible to start to get a handle on the scale of the visible universe around us. And also the fact that uh, um, by and large, as on average, Galaxies are moving away from each other. You know, they're ex- the universe is expanding. Even if Brooklyn is not expanding, the universe is. <laughs> <laughs> and, and um, you, you know, so that's that's quite a momentous discovery, yes. of course. And it's the world in which we live. You know, it might seem irrelevant, but like you, I I, I think I get off on this stuff. You know, if it wasn't for our moon, I mean, it's just mind blowing <laughs> stuff, though, isn't it? Like, I mean, you talk about exoplanets as well, and. There's one in particular, I think, which is um, orbiting one of these Cepheid stars. And this is an abbreviation, but the exoplanet is called 2 Mass J2126. Oh, it yeah, takes, we all know that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, that yeah. one, yeah. And it takes something like 900,000 years for it to orbit its star. I mean, that is just astonishing. Yeah, it is. Um, I mean, it's. You know, there's this never, is, there's well, no end to what we. You know the discoveries and the ver- the variation of these, the extreme variations. Yeah, there's. Um, I mean, this is a great uh, set of uh, ongoing process of discovery in the last twenty years or so uh, of exoplanets. You mentioned the word, and this is just one. You know, people used to think uh, they used to wonder whether uh, it was quite unusual for there to be planets orbiting a star like the sun. And if there were, wouldn't they all be arranged like the planets around the sun? Mm. Wouldn't we be kind of like a bog-standard mm. arrangement with small rocky planets close to the to the star and big gas giants further out? And um, the Kepler telescope in this case, but there were other telescopes on Earth, the Kepler telescope in space started to um, help astronomers find uh, first a few, then dozens, now hundreds and thousands of exoplanets planets orbiting other stars mm. of all kinds and shapes and sizes, some going around red giants, very, you know, going in very close orbits, maybe tidally locked, some huge uh, planets like the one you mentioned going around very slowly, maybe planets completely covered in water, others with, uh, with diamonds raining out of the sky. I mean, if nothing else, they, um, well, there's this, you know, there's this thing of the Copernican moment, this, uh, when Copernicus, um, Popularized, repopularized or rehypothesized the mm. idea that 
um, we lived in a heliocentric universe. Yes. Uh, in other words, that the Earth went round the Sun, not the other way around. Uh, the Copernican moment is the moment you know when we realize we're kind of we're not the center of things, uh, and that continues to be the case. But it's also true that when we begin to appreciate just how varied and uh, beautiful and strange other solar systems are, it, uh, we can reflect on just how remarkable and special and apparently, as far as we can still determine, probably quite unusual our particular solar system is, and just how specific the conditions have to be for a planet like earth to exist and for life to, for life to first emerge. to evolve and also yeah. to get us keep going for as long yeah. as it has uh more than four billion years perhaps or around that amount of time well there's lots more i'd love to discuss with you uh, from a remarkable book a new map of wonders but thank you so much casper for coming in to 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 speak with me on the liberia podcast paddy thanks a lot for having me it's been really really fun well, absolutely great to talk to Casper, such a gent. And I love talking about these particular ideas. Seemed like we were virtually hopping around the universe there. As always, do check out the full cultural program listings on secondhome.io. Lots of great stuff coming up. And sign up for our newsletter at liberia.io. See you next time.